As we begin tonight, uh, we would like to hear about your testimony. How did the Lord save you? Give us some context there. Well, you have to go back just a little bit for me to before I was even born. I'm the last of 10 kids. Um, my dad was a nightclub entertainer, played the bass fiddle for a nightclub act in the big band era, actually. Um, and the Lord saved him out of that before I was born. He had a musical conservatory degree, but he wanted to take that and become involved in the music of the church. And so when I was born, we were, we were there every time the doors were open because he led music in, uh, in a number of Baptist, Southern Baptist churches in Mobile, Alabama, as I was growing up. So that was sort of my background, and out of that context, my parents were both in Christ, uh, heard the gospel often, and um, because of that, I, I always was attracted to the things, at least uh, externally, to the things of, of the gospel, the things of the scripture. And uh, so when I was about five years old, I made my per- first profession of faith, and those of you grown up in Christian homes, you understand what that means. You know, you, you sort of... Uh, respond to what you think you know, and uh, time goes along when I was a little older. And by the way, I was, I was shortly thereafter baptized, or at least got wet. And, um, and then fast forward to my early teenage years, also again, heard the gospel. My conscience was, was uh, rebuked by what I was hearing. I, I went to the pastor. It was a, we were visiting a church, actually, at that point. Went to the pastor and and he walked through a pretty, pretty rigorous plan, and, um, and I honestly confused me at that point as to what the gospel really was. It was so complicated, and, uh, but I prayed another prayer, and I was baptized a second time. Um, that was when I was about 13, and sort of went on the strength of that, sort of putting my confidence in that experience for a period of time. But when I was a senior in high school, I heard what I think was my first expositional sermon. There may have been one, and I forgot, I've forgotten it, but, but it wasn't routine by any means. And I remember sitting in, a, in a, a weekday service. We had a visiting speaker, and I remember the name because at the time there was a guy who was on death row, unrelated, same name, Gary Gilmore. And, um, and he came, and he spoke, and he walked through the, the book of Revelation, particularly the last few chapters. And it wasn't a message aimed at uh, evangelism. It was just walking through the text. And when he got to those passages that talk about who won't be in heaven, um, I just, the Holy Spirit just convicted me. I saw myself in several of those nouns and, um, and several of those sins. And I went to my pastor and I explained, I said, look, look you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of this routine. I want to I really understand what it means to know the Lord. And and the Lord just gave him great wisdom to see through my situation. And he said to me that night, he says, you know, Tom, he says, it seems to me you put your confidence in a prayer, you put your confidence in a plan, but salvation is in a person, Jesus Christ. And it's that person that you have to deal with. And it's, uh, it's like the Holy Spirit just opened my eyes to see the truth of who Christ was, what the gospel was. I'd heard it all my life. But then I understood that I had to come before Christ and and plead for his forgiveness, and commit myself to follow him. And uh, as a senior in high school, came to faith in Christ, and was finally truly baptized. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of all that. So you went into the water three times. Is that right? That's right, three times. So that's not just an Anabaptist. That's... No, <laughs> and that was not brethren either. It wasn't three times at the same time. It was three separate times. So that was a, a uh, you said a senior in high school. 
And uh, what did your life look like after that? Did you notice a, a demonstrable change in desires, uh, in, in your, your hungers for the truth, things like that? Explain a little bit about those following months and years. Yeah, I think the, the chief change was back to that, that connection to a person. I, I now understood that, that Christianity wasn't just a series of decisions to make some changes in your life. It began with a radical change to me that God had produced, and that produced a change in, my, in what I loved and what I hated. Uh, the things that I once loved, I really did begin to hate. It wasn't that I still didn't struggle with sin. I certainly did, but for the first time in my life, I hated it when that happened, and I, I sought the Lord's forgiveness with, with tears, and, and I loved the truth, and I, I wanted to know more about God and who He was and His Word, more than just a sort of cursory knowledge that I had sought before. And I began to see those, those desires build into an additional knowledge, and then as Peter talks about it, beyond that virtue, and you begin to see those things build in your life. And so, uh, just an increasing desire to, to love Christ, to know Him, to follow Him, to honor Him with my life, and a hatred of those things that I had loved. Even, even though I didn't live some terrible profligate life, I grew up in a Christian home, but those things I knew that before I had loved and found pleasure in now were distasteful to me. So how did that impact the decisions you made as a senior in high school with what you're going to do next in life after school was over? Well, it's, I'd already decided, you know, as a senior in high school, I'd already committed, you know, what I was going to do. I was going to go to college, go to the college, kind of the alma mater, which was a, a Christian college. I was going to go there. My dad had gone there when he had been converted and learned how to use his music, and several of my siblings had gone there. And, um, and so I kind of had my course set, but it was going to be pre-law. That's really what my, my mind and heart were set on. That was before Christ. And, um, I, you know, I, have, I hate to admit it to you, but after I came to Christ, I just sort of baptized that idea with, this is what the Lord wants me to do. And, and it's not that I thought I was lying in that. I think I just convinced myself that it was what the Lord wanted me to do and just launched into pursuing that. And how long down the path did you get with that? Well, it, it, you know, I started, as soon as I got to college, I, I still had this desire to learn the truth and started find, trying to find a church that, where the Scripture was taught expositionally. And I also began to minister. I started going on Saturday nights pretty early in my college career as a pre-law student, and I started going to um, the prisons to preach. And so I would go most Saturday nights, and, uh, and I, would, I would preach to the men there and preach the truth. And and just really developed a love for teaching and preaching God's truth. This is while I'm still in pre-law, still thinking that's where I'm going. And, um, and that continued for three years into my education. And then there was a sort of crisis point that, um, you know, I don't know, maybe we'll get there later in the questions, but, but um, that's when then I changed majors my junior year and began to pursue Bible. Well, let's talk about that right now, since we're on the topic. What was that moment? And, and how did it change you? Well, I, you know, I had convinced myself that the, the reason I wanted to be in pre-law was to serve the kingdom. And, and I really think that was true. It wasn't, for me, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about prestige. It was like, you know, it's when Christianity had just begun to really be attacked in the court systems. And, and so I thought, boy, there's a, I would enjoy that. I feel like I'm wired to do that. I'm going to pursue that. 
And so I, I was doing it, I think, as best I can know my own heart for the right reasons. But, uh, you know, I, I had this increasing desire to handle God's Word, to teach. And when I was a junior in college, this would have been the second semester of my junior year, still in pre-law, beginning to look at law schools. Um, one morning, I passed out in the shower, actually. And uh, they rushed me to the hospital. They thought, initially, they thought, you know, it was my appendix and <laughs> had even begun to talk about, you know, a, a surgery time later that day. Then they did another series of tests and decided that I had this terribly contagious disease. And this was back when it took a long time for test results to come back. And so they literally put me in a room in isolation for two weeks. And, um, and, you know, the nurses, they came in all garbed up, and they slid my food under the door. And, um, and so I was alone. I, I essentially, I, for two weeks in college, I'm alone with nothing to do. And there was no TV uh, in the room I was in at that point. And so I had my Bible, and I just began to read the Gospels. And um, I read through the Gospels in those two weeks, maybe at least once, maybe a couple of times. I don't remember now. But I remember the second week. On Thursday night of that, on Thursday of that week, I'd read again and again how Jesus committed himself in his ministry to teaching and preaching. You know, he did miracles, but the real thrust of his ministry was teaching and preaching the Word of God. And uh, that just hit home to me and just sort of shattered my idea that, that you know, the, the best way that the Christian faith could be helped was with an attorney in the courtroom. And I realized the real power of God was what the Son of God himself committed to do was his word. And so uh, at the time, I didn't know what that meant for me. I just remember getting down on my knees on the, the second week, on Thursday night of that second week, in that hospital room by myself, and I just said, Lord, I don't know what you want with my life, but I, whatever it is, that's what I want to do. And if it involves the very thing that our Lord committed himself to when he was here, then that's what I'll do. And it was about three months later that, you know, through a series of circumstances, some counsel, my own prayers, uh, my heart was really settled in, uh, in the confirmation of the church as well. My heart was really settled that this is what the Lord had called me to do. And so draw the line from that point to your ministry involvement here. How did you get from there to here? Well, I, um, I started then. I changed majors. took me an extra year to finish. Essentially... Um, graduated with almost a double major in pre-law and Bible, and, um, and then uh, I pursued seminary. So I was in between undergrad and seminary. It took me about, about 10 years. That's because I slowed down in seminary because I started teaching on the undergrad level. I taught Bible and English, and then I was pastoring. My first pastor, it was actually this little church in Gaffney, South Carolina, while I was in seminary. It was about 50 miles away, and I would drive up on Wednesday nights and and on Sundays, and uh, just really began to develop a love for the church. And of course, I loved teaching students, but what I really enjoyed was ministering in the church and, and being with God's people. And, uh, you know, you learn a lot of lessons in those times, both preaching in the prison and preaching in a small little church. You discover when you're boring, because, you know, particularly in prison, you know, God just lay down on the back row and go to sleep. If you it's like, okay, I guess that means I'm, I'm not connecting very well here. Um, so those were great, great times and great learning experiences. Okay. When did you arrive at Grace Church? I, um, my wife and I, we were in South Carolina, and 
we decided I was working on a PhD and I decided we decided together that this is just not what God had called me to do. He hadn't called me to spend my life in the classroom, called me to spend my life in ministry. And so we started talking about how are we going to do that? And, um, and we decided we wanted to see a real living, breathing church. I'd been in Southern Baptist churches, my dad growing up, and we'd attended a couple of independent churches, but I'd never really felt like I'd seen a living, breathing model of a New Testament church. And so we talked about it. We'd never visited California. And uh, we said, you know what? We're going to go to Grace Community Church, and we're going we're gonna to attend for a couple of years. I thought I, I was an electrician by trade. I thought, you know, I'll get, um, I'll get a job. We'll attend Grace. I'll see what a real church looks like, get, get involved in ministry. And then a couple of years later, we'll, we'll pursue the ministry. Actually, it was a really bad idea, but the Lord has a way of looking out for us. And so we moved here in... Uh, in, this would have been 87, 1987, in September of 87, we sat right over here, and our first Sunday was the first Sunday of September, and we, we arrived on Saturday night, came on Sunday morning, Phil Webb sang, I want to know Christ, and John MacArthur preached, and we wept through the whole service because we felt like these are our people. We finally are at home. They share the same values and, and loves that we do. And uh, just connected. Uh, you know, some of us are slow learners. I thought I'd be here two years and go pursue the pastorate. Instead, I ended up here 16 years. Um, but uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful 16 years. Now, you mentioned your wife, Sheila. Uh, explain the background. How, how, how did you meet her? Where did you meet her? Uh, when did you get married? And how has God blessed you in, in that context? Well, I've alluded a couple of times to... Um, the school that I attended, when people ask me where I went to school, I typically say, I went to school behind the Iron Curtain, Bob Jones. And um, some of you know about that. You understand that. Um, you know, I, I really did get a good education, a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ there. There were just increasingly, as I grew in my own faith, increasingly things that I disagreed with. Not so much even theologically, more in the practice side of things. But, um, but her dad taught there for 35 years, C.W. Smith, and he taught there, never really fit, to be honest. It was always kind of a maverick, and, um, and after 35 years, he, they left and moved to California because someone had told John about him, and uh, he spent the last 15 years of his, of his teaching theology and Bible at the Master's College at the time, and in fact, it's a joy of my daughters. One has graduated from Master's, the second one is there now, and it's a joy for them to stay in the dorm named after their grandfather, C.W. Smith Dorm, or C.W. as it's called. So yeah. that's, that's kind of the that's, background. I met Sheila there. By the way, it wasn't because of her dad. It was in spite of her dad. Um, but so we, he, was a, he was against the idea at first? No, no, no. No, not at all. I just mean I wasn't one of those guys who, you know, was looking to, to lend the professor's daughter because that's a, a prize, a trophy wife. It wasn't that at all. I... I met her um, when I was a graduate student. I'd had him for several classes undergrad, and then I had him for Matthew and Greek in grad school, and um, and we actually got along very well, and you know thought a lot alike. So I did very well in his classes, and and so um, later I met Sheila, and um, we we went on our. She confused me with another guy at Bob Jones, a guy that she thought was a real you know, uh, how do I say this? Loser. Yeah. <laughs> 
somebody who bought into everything hook, line, and sinker and was a real sort of legalist kind of guy. And so she almost didn't, didn't agree to go out with me the first time, but her mom convinced her to go. And, um, and we just had a great time from the very start of our relationship. Just we're, we're friends the first date. In fact, I remember going back and telling my, uh, my graduate um, roommate, I said, I think, this is after my first date, by the way, I said, I think for the first time in my life, I met someone I could spend the rest of my life with. And here we are, 32 years later, and married 32 years. 32 years. And so what, what year was that, using the math? You got married what year? 1986. 86. Yeah. Yeah. And the Lord has blessed you with two daughters? Three, three daughters. Three daughters. Three daughters. Okay. My oldest daughter, Lauren, just graduated in May from Masters. She's back in Dallas, loves our church, and works at uh, ICR, the Institute for Creation Research there in Dallas. And then my middle daughter, Katie, is here at Masters, and both of them have loved Sojourners and are part of that. Uh, We were involved in that. We were here. And then my youngest daughter, Jessica, is finishing up her senior year this year, and so she and my middle daughter, Katie, will overlap, Lord willing, one year at Masters next year. So, yeah. Speaking of marriage, as you look on now 32 years, uh, you've learned a lot in those three decades, knowing what you do now, if you could go back in time, what would be some things that you would do a little differently as a husband? You know, by God's grace, and some of you had this advantage, I, I had some really good influences in my life early on in marriage. Some, uh, some books that we were encouraged to read that were very biblical in their, in their perspective, even before we were married, we went through them. And uh, there were some people who really shepherded us. In fact, in our early days here, some of you old-timers will remember Fred and Mary Barshaw. Um, they, they were very much involved in our lives. In fact, my wife actually was Fred's secretary here at Grace Church when we first came. And, um, and they were dear people and really had a great impact on us in our marriage. And so it's not like I would go back and say, wow, I just missed it from the very beginning because, because of those influences neither Sheila or I would say that. But to answer your question, as I thought about that, as I think about that, I think the main thing, and I would just say this generally, is I think I would spend less time on unimportant distractions. You know, I think we're all prone. I don't know about you. I'm pretty conscientious. I'm pretty task-oriented. You know, do the next thing, do it well. And it's really easy to waste a lot of time on things that when you reach a later point in life, you look back and go, you know, it really wasn't that important. In fact, I'll tell you a little, a little thing that, um, that some of you know Bob King. Um, when, I was, when I was younger and completely uh, carried away by the busyness of life and ministry, we had lunch one day, and Bob shared this little, uh, little antidote with me. He said, you know, Tom, he said, for a lot of my life, I've been working in nursing homes and ministering in nursing homes. And he said, I always ask them in nursing homes this question. If you could live your life over again, what would you do differently? And he looked at me across the table and he said, do you know what, Tom? Not one of them has ever said, I just wish I'd spent more time at the office. Think about it. Um, We can become so consumed not to say we shouldn't work and work hard, we should. And of course, there are a lot of demands on our lives that we have to do them. I just, if I could do it over again, I wouldn't be as distracted with those things and I would pour more time 
and more energy into my relationship with my wife than even I did. And I think she would say that we did that. We have a wonderful relationship and always have. We've been best friends since the first date. And so um, it's not that that's been bad. It's that those things can, can unnecessarily distract you from what really matters, what's important when you reach a certain stage in life. As you look at some of the, the marriages in your church or that you've known throughout the year, what are some areas where men are getting distracted? You know, you mentioned work. Uh, what are some of these other smaller details which are just kind of part of the, the vanity of life that we live in this fallen world? List some of those that come to mind and, and how to properly handle those in our list of priorities. Well, I, I think, you know, some of it depends on your age, you know, um, as far as what those distractions are. But I would say for younger guys, it's a huge distraction in terms of electronic issues, whether it's uh, social media or whether it's um, video games and the competitions that go on with that. Um, you know, there are just a lot of things that I promise you, when you get my age or some of you guys are older, you look back, it's going to be, wow, that was, I spent way too much time there. That was a waste. And so I, I just think that's a temptation. Entertainment is always an, uh, an issue. You know, if you look at the average number of hours guys spend sitting in front of some screen, it's huge. I don't remember now the number, but it's, it's more than five a day, if I remember right. Um, and so I, I think those are some things. I think sports, I love sports. I love football, grew up playing football, but, um, you know, I think even things that can be enjoyable and in and of themselves are not issues can easily become a distraction if you give yourself over to them, if you don't exercise self-control and say, what matters and what's going to matter? In fact, I'll, I'll share one episode that I had in college that left a permanent imprint on me. I was sitting in a class, and my professor said this. This has been a long time ago now, so you know it's made an imprint. I was sitting there, and he said this. He said, you realize there's an industry that's betting on your life. And, of course, he was talking about the insurance industry. And he went on to talk about the actuarial tables. And he said, you know, there's this complicated set of actuarial tables to decide how long you're going to live. And at that point, it's changed a little bit, but not much through the years. He said, if you're a male sitting in this classroom you're going to, on average, live to 74 years of age. And he said, I want you to do a little math problem. I want you to subtract your age from 74. He said, that's how long you have left to live. Some of you are already on borrowed time. Um, you know, that's how long you have left to live. And, and you know what? It wasn't morbid for me. It was motivational. It was, it was like, wow. You know, at 20, I think I was 24 at the time. I don't remember. But I did the math. I was like, wow. A third of my life is already gone. What am I going to do with the rest of it? And, and I think that thought has never been more than a few days from my mind. And it just drives me to say, I want to live the life God has given me, the gift he's given me on purpose. What am I going to do with the rest of it? That's the question we all ought to be asking ourselves every day. Would you say that that's probably one of the great challenges that men especially today face is that we either don't live enough in light of eschatology, we're not living in, in light of the imminence of the Lord's return, and we're not living enough in the light of our impending death. Teach us to number our days. That's the, 
the passage that comes to my mind. I mean, so that we may apply our hearts into wisdom. And, and I think that's what I'm talking about. And that's what struck me in that comment. It's like, that's it. That's, that's the perspective that we're taught to have. But you're right. It's, it's also the Lord's return. It's, it's the brevity of life. But even if the Lord tarries, you're not going to beat the odds by much. You know, some of us will not hit the average. Some of us will live beyond the average. Some of us will, the Lord will take us around the average. But the bottom line is life is short. Live it on purpose. Don't waste it on stuff that doesn't matter. Now, you mentioned that you and Sheila have a a wonderful marriage. Fill us in a, a little bit about how that looks on a practical level day-to-day, how you as a husband fulfill Ephesians 5.25, loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, you know, that, that sounds good on a, on, a, on a placard above the fireplace or in, the, in your office, but what does that look like from when you get up in the morning, throughout the day? How do you love your wife, practically speaking? Well, let me, let me give you a, a something you can see and take home rather than just what I do, but it's built on this. Go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, you're familiar with this passage, of course, commands us how that we're to love our wives. But if you go through this passage, you'll discover that there are, there are four specific ways we're told to love our wives. And if you capture those, then you can figure out how to do it practically. Let me just show you briefly. You'll notice, first of all, in verse 25, our love for our wives is to be a sacrificial love. He says, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, so let's start there. If our love, like Christ, is to be sacrificial, then it means I sacrifice my desires, my, my de- what I want to do for her. It, it might be as simple, in fact, it is as simple, as getting home from work and instead of saying, wow, I'm tired, and I don't feel like doing anything, and I just want to selfishly indulge myself, it means, what does my wife need? What would most, how is the way I can best express my love to her? That sacrificial love, you know, your pastor, I remember one, one way he put it, he said, you know, a lot of guys talk about a willingness to die for their wives. What about taking out the trash? You know, Let's talk really practical. You're probably not going to be called to die for your wife, but if you're really willing to do that, then really, you're not going to take out the trash? You're, you're not going to endure a trip to the mall? You know, it, that's what, I mean, uh, it was um, Ken Hughes who talked about that, you know. For some men, uh, over the entrance to the golf course, it says the gates of paradise, and, and over the entrance to the mall, it says welcome to hell itself. And, and that's how a lot of guys view it. And so, okay. Are we willing to sacrifice practically for our wives? That's what he's talking about. Yes, Christ did it in the most profound, extreme way, but that doesn't mean we, our love shouldn't be sacrificial. It means day-to-day sacrificing my desires to meet her needs. What needs? Second word, sacrificial love, second word is found in verse uh, 26, that he might sanctify her. Our love is to be a sacrificial love. It's also to be a sanctifying love. So your love for your wife needs to be for her spiritual benefit. That means you're becoming the person you ought to be. It means you're not, you're not 
exposing her to sin. You're not tempting her to sin. You're not, you're not doing things, having things on the television that are, that are inappropriate, that shouldn't be there for her sake. It, it means so many things. If your love is sanctifying, it means you're thinking about her spiritual life when you make the daily decisions of life, like the choices you make, the words you use, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's a second concept. Um, the third one, uh, not only is it to be a sacrificial love, a, a sanctifying love, thirdly, it's to be a nourishing love. He goes on to say, you know, he gives the illustration first of Christ's love for the church, then of our love for our bodies. And he says in verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but here it is, but nourishes it just as Christ does the church. That word nourish literally means to feed. It's talking about meeting her physical needs. Uh, It's interesting, you know, under the Old Testament law, a husband was required to make sure his wife had adequate food, adequate clothing, and conjugal rights. Unfortunately, there are a lot of guys who are not caring for their wife's physical needs because they're selfishly indulging themselves in front of a computer screen. But this word nourishing means you take care of her physical needs. So does your wife, does she feel well-loved and cared for in terms of what she has for her physical needs in this life? Or do you just, are you a miser, sort of hang on to every penny and make her do with whatever? I, I think that's the real practical side of it. And then the last word is, um, is cherish. Cherish. And, you know, we cherish our own flesh Christ cherishes the church, we're to cherish our wives. What does that word mean? It's interesting, that word is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used in the Thessalonian epistles for a, new, a mother, how she responds to her newborn baby. This is the attitude we're to do this with. It's to be the tenderness of a mom with her newborn baby. Is that how your wife thinks about how you treat her? Or do you treat her like, you know, the opposing lineman, you know, in a football game? Um, it's this, to me, this is very practical. What do you do to sacrifice for her, for her needs? What needs? Well, her spiritual needs, is, it's a sanctifying love. Her physical needs, it's a nourishing love. And how do you do that? You do it with a cherishing spirit where you treat her with tenderness and gentleness and care. So for me, that's, that's sort of the, the grid that imperfectly I try to pursue in loving my wife. And I think she would tell you that while I am imperfect, she can see those efforts. And, uh, and I think, so for me, that provides a great outline. That's why I share it with you. Yeah, it's very helpful. Thank you. And we could follow up a lot on that, and maybe we'll have some time near the end. I want to deal with another issue related to family. Uh, we, we hear of, of your daughters. They're walking with the Lord. Uh, when it comes to children who aren't walking with the Lord, who make no profession of faith, often the instruction that's given to parents is really aimed at parents who have younger children. You know, what, what to do, you know, how to read the Bible with them or how to pray with them, you know, get them in the, in the company of other believers and things like that. But very rarely do we hear instruction that's actually given to parents of adult children. So as, as you have experienced ministering to, to parents of adult children who aren't believers, what, are, what is some counsel that you would give to the men here who have children, they're adults, they're not walking with the Lord? How can they evangelize them, and how can they just be good parents to them, though they resist the gospel? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question, and it's a common one. You know, we have a number of families in our church with that situation. Some some of them uh, were believers, and their kids grew up in the church. Others of them, the, the parents came to faith later in life, and the kids were, you know, were not in a, growing up in a Christian home. So it comes in all shapes and sizes. And um, I would just encourage you to do this. Start by just genuinely loving your kids. They're your kids, whether they're in Christ or not. There is, there is a natural affection. You know, it talks about eventually, and we see it in our culture, that people will be without that sort of natural effect. There's a natural affection that comes from, you know, this, this child is a result of you and your wife, and, and you need to love them, and they need to know you love them. In fact, I encourage parents in that situation to tell their kids, look, you need to know that I love you, I pray for you, and I will always love you. You're always my son. You're always my daughter, and nothing's going to change that. And I just want you to know that and and be assured of that. So I think it starts just from that. So they don't feel like they're a project. They feel like you genuinely love and care for them as people and because of who they are. Um, I think then it, it involves being real and transparent with them. In other words, what I mean by that is it's easy to treat your kids who aren't in Christ differently than you would, tr- you would talk, for example, to believers in your church. Don't do that. Live your Christian life in front of them. If you would say, you know, I thank the Lord for this. He did this for me to your Christian friend. Say it to your child. Be, be real and transparent about your faith in front of them and let them see that this is who you are. This is, this is who you are when you're at church. It's who you are when you're with them. And, and I think beyond that then, you can reach into their lives spiritually. Invite them to church. Invite them to special events, to the Christmas concert. You know, invite them to Easter. Invite them to events that they may, may come to and be exposed to the gospel. I think, um, obviously, you look for opportunities to share the gospel with them specifically. Not every time you're together, but strategic times when you bring the gospel to bear in a, in a kind and gracious way. Um, send them sermons that meant a lot to you, that you think they would, it's on a theme perhaps, that they would enjoy or benefit from. Send them books you've read that have made an impact on you. Just, just be a real Christian in front of your kids. They may not listen to those sermons. They may not read those books, but they will get the picture that this really matters to you. And uh, when the time comes, you're going to have an open door. And then finally, and this isn't finally, this is the most important thing. Uh, Every person is a Calvinist when they pray, because we pray to God for the salvation of those we love. Why? Because we know that ultimately God's the only one that can do it. And so that's what you have to do. You come to God and you pour out your soul. You know, we we serve a God who delights to be a Savior, he is a rescuer, and he delights to be a rescuer, and he delights to hear the prayers of his people. You know, the, the righteous cry, the psalmist says, and the Lord hears. So don't give up on that child. That story is not over till it's over. So keep pursuing them and loving them and praying for them. I often think about the, the thief on the cross. You know, there's, a, there's an interesting story. There's a guy who grew up in a, in, in a Jewish home, and who was taught the scriptures early on, you know, you can put his life back together and you see what happens. He eventually gets in with the wrong crowd, becomes a zealot, gets involved in the insurrection, murders, you know, Romans or high-placed sympathizers, and he ends up on that cross, and 
somewhere within five hours of his death, he comes to genuine faith. And if Christ hadn't been on the center cross, we may never know about it. So my point is, don't give up. Don't give up. You never know. To the very end, God delights to be a Savior, and uh, he may save that child that you, sh- you shared with, prayed for, uh, and so forth. Uh, a situation related to this is the, the case where parents have, have raised their kids in the church. The, the kids at a young age have made a, a profession of faith, as you even mentioned, that wasn't sincere, wasn't a genuine work of God at, at that point yet. But they've become members, they've become baptized members of the church, and then they go through church discipline. It's found out that they're not saved, and so the, the child goes through a process of church discipline and is excommunicated. Does that affect at all the parents' uh, the, the parents' responsibilities to and relationship to that child? You know, I don't believe it does. You're still the parent. You still have responsibilities, just as a child would toward parents in that situation. Um, you know, First Timothy five is clear about that. So I don't think those those familial duties and responsibilities go away. All it means is you don't treat that person like they're in Christ. That's all it means. Um, but that doesn't mean you shun them because they're a family member. doesn't mean you don't have anything to do with them. Um, I think it just means your mindset shifts about how you see them and how you respond to them. They're no, you're assuming, as Christ said, they are not true believers. That's what changes. But in terms of your interaction, I, I, I don't think when it comes to a family that that changes. And the same thing would go for a spouse. If a, one of the the spouse in the marriage is excommunicated, it doesn't cancel out the spousal responsibilities in that situation. Yeah, can you for imagine? The yeah. It's not humorous, but can you imagine the awkwardness if if that were required? <laughs> it essentially caused divorces exactly. because of that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we have a lot of other questions here to ask, and maybe some of these uh, we can come back to with respect to your family. Let me shift gears to some theology and ministry questions. Uh, one relates to the upcoming election three weeks from now, uh, November 6th, I think it is. Uh, you know, our culture is exceedingly divided, and we're seeing more and more uh, expressions of violence that are being expressed in relation to political views. What should be the role of Christians in this very hostile and tenuous culture, tenuous situation where violence or violent behavior can erupt at any time over any kind of political discussion? Well, first of all, you have to remember that I pastor in Texas. Now, there are a couple things you need to know about Texas. One is it's the only state that joined the United States by treaty and therefore in the treaty has the legal right to secede from the Union. And that is discussed from time to time, uh, seriously. The, the other thing you need to know is very, it has been, it's becoming increasingly so because so many Californians are moving to Texas, but it used to be very politically conservative. And I live in a very conservative area. And I have to remind my church and remind my people, look, you know, yes, you need to land on the issues of our times. But first of all, you need to be a Christian. You need to think biblically and and then you, you can filter out the rest of it that the Bible doesn't directly address. But don't wear one as importantly as you wear the other. And, um, and I think that's the first thing. And I would say this, you've sensed it. Even among Christians, there's the, like this, this rage, this, 
this growing animosity and hatred, I think we have to remind ourselves first and foremost, I'm preaching, just started preaching through Daniel on, on Sunday nights, and I'm just struck already, I'm, I'm Daniel 1, I'm struck already with God's sovereignty over all the affairs of nations and empires and kings. God sets on the throne whom he will at every level whether it's your mayor, your city councilman, the governor of the state, or the, your congresspeople, or the president. Sometimes he does that for blessing, and sometimes he does that for judgment. And sometimes it's hard to discern which of those he's doing. But the point is, he then expects us to respond to them in a certain way, and that's laid down biblically. So I, I think that's where you have to start. You have to start by reminding yourself that the powers that are ordained of God, that God is the one who raises up and puts down. He sets over the, the kingdoms of this earth, Daniel says, the lowliest of men. He does what he wills. And so what is our responsibility? Well, your responsibility and mine is primarily, not exclusively, we live in a, we live in a republic or some say a democracy, but regardless, we live in a place where we have a vote, so we have some other responsibilities. But biblically, our chief responsibilities are to pray for the salvation of our leaders, to pay our taxes, and to honor and respect those in authority. doesn't mean we respect them for the people they are. Many of them are not respectable in terms of the people they are, but in terms of the positions they hold. So I think you start there. Then you ratchet down the anger and the, the vitriol on the Internet. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about a series on the sins of the Internet because there's a, there's a long list of them. Christians do things on the internet they would never think about doing in any other place. And one of those is pouring out their anger and hatred and vitriol on comments or on posts or, you know, whatever about these issues. And I think you have to start by saying, what is the fruit of the Spirit even in my politics? And this even takes us back to one of your earlier comments about things that are a waste of time that really make no difference 5, 10, 20 years from now, and that's reading through all those vitriolic comments, trying to respond to everyone, trying to correct the world, when that, first of all, it's ineffective, fruitless, it's vain. And secondly, it, it doesn't, uh, doesn't help you as a person develop godliness and, and proper attitudes. No, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think, of course, we all want to be informed. We want to make as wise a choice as we can in terms of the people for whom we vote. I do think uh, and I tell my congregation, I, I think because we are to obey our government, uh, unless they ask us to do that, which violates the Scripture, and one of the things in a country like ours they ask us to do is to participate in the system, I think we ought to do that. I'd stop short of saying it's sin not to, but I think we ought to do that. I think that's part of being um, you know, a, a good citizen of the kind of country in which we live. But keep it in balance. Don't let it become... You know, you listen to you know, 20 hours of talk radio a, a day, and it, 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 I tell you what it does. I've, I've talked to people in my church. It puts you in a position where it's almost impossible for you to respect some of the leaders of our country because you have so imbibed all of that. So just be careful. Be a Christian before you're whatever other label you want to wear. And some, some would be very concerned that we see a, a socialist agenda that's crystallizing, that's gaining popularity and traction, and that in order to 
save this country for children, our children to come, our future generations. We have to resist that. How do you respond to that kind of reasoning that we've got to somehow resist the rise of socialism? What does that look like maybe in a good way? And what would be the wrong approach to that issue? Uh, again, I think there are biblical concepts that can be involved. I mean, you know, even, even in the millennium, everyone is under his own vine and fig tree. There's a, there's a principle of private ownership. I, I get all that. I understand all that. And I think we ought to be, we ought to do what we can if we oppose a, a philosophy that seems to be contrary to a, a biblical philosophy. So what that means is use the system. Vote. Tell others you think they ought to vote against that idea. But I think what you shouldn't do is become rabid in your attitude or completely distracted in your, in your efforts from what really matters. Listen, if, if, if this country is going to, as it already has, continue to desert some of those original founding principles, that's going to happen. And you can vote, you can do what you can, but you can't change that. So why are you, why are you, um, you know, losing sleep over that issue? Do what you can. Be a responsible citizen, but leave that in God's hands. Yeah, that's helpful. It's helpful also to remember that for most of church history, the majority of the church has not been in the kind of context of freedom that we enjoy now. The 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 church in general throughout history has been in persecuted contexts whether that's the socialism of, of communism and, and so on, or before that, the, the different uh, kingdoms and the, and the, the dictatorships. Uh, we have a tendency to expect that this is just the way Christianity is. It's lived in this kind of freedom. It can only exist in this kind of freedom. You know, I, I do think, again, I think if you go back to, for example, the theocracy um, and what God established, I'm not saying that this is a theocracy ever should be. I think there are principles there. You know, you had, you had those in authority, but they were under the law. And, you know, the king, Deuteronomy 17, was to make a copy of the law, read it every day. There were also, uh, if you will, elected representatives. The elders of the people constituted a council in Old Testament Israel. So you had some of those things that were eventually borrowed under the British system and then, of course, borrowed and adopted here. And, and so it's not that none of these concepts are biblical concepts. I think some of them are. I just, your, your point is absolutely right. God's not promised us that that will be the system we live under, nor is it our right. And in fact, for most of human history, that hasn't been true believers' right. And so, um, you know, again, I'm not saying we just give up, throw up our hands and do nothing. Do what you can within the system maintaining a biblical Christian spirit in the process. Another issue related to the culture, Halloween, two weeks, or actually, yeah, two weeks from today, Halloween. And so we, we see the decorations going up already. Americans are spending an outlandish amount of money on decorations, uh, you know, million, hundreds of millions of dollars on decorations for Halloween. Uh, what should be the Christian's perspective regarding participation in a holiday like Halloween. So, you know, is it okay for kids to go trick-or-treating? Uh, is it okay to put up some orange lights and a couple of pumpkins out the front door, carving a, a pumpkin, something like that? How, 
how do you instruct your church on that? Well, I, I think you have to back up and look at the bigger question. And I think that's where I would always start. With every moral decision, I'm not talking now about the color of socks you wear, although some of you, you know, wear some pretty outlandish socks, but, but I'm talking about moral decisions. With those moral decisions, there are only three categories. There's, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt, chapter and verse. You can point it to me, I can read it. It clearly says that. Or category number two, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not, chapter and verse. And then there's the third category, which is issues of conscience. That's it. Every moral decision you and I have to make falls into one of those three categories. So you tell me, when it comes to your family's celebration of Halloween, which of those three categories does it fall? Is there a verse that says, thou shalt not celebrate Halloween? No. So what it falls into is the issue of conscience. There are Christians who absolutely will not partake in any way of Halloween. I mean, they won't pass out candy when the kids come to the door. Their young kids don't go to the neighbor's houses. And you know what? That's a decision they have to make before the Lord. There are others who are comfortable doing that because they don't see it as a celebration of evil. They, you know, their kids dress up as whatever. Um, it is an individual family issue. And we're not left on our own here. In other words, just because you can doesn't mean you should. There are four chapters in the Bible that tell you how to think about issues of conscience. Romans 14, we could add 15 um, as well, and then 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. You take those chapters together, and you read those, you study those, and you'll find that in decisions like this one, there are several criteria that you are to use to evaluate and make these decisions. Um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, through the many years that Pastor John has been here, he's probably taught through that a number of times. You can go online and listen if you want. I, I think I did, uh, I'm, I'm still in Romans 9, but I have taught on, um, I'm teaching through Romans. I'm in Romans 9, been in Romans about four years now, and um, I'm going to get chapter 14. But I, I have preached a series of four messages, an overview of issues of conscience. You can go to our website and listen. But those, those, chapters tell us how to make those decisions. So, but big picture, I'd come back to it. You have to ask yourself, every moral decision, chapter and verse, thou shalt, chapter and verse, thou shalt not, or issue of conscience. And if it's an issue of conscience, it means you have to make a decision using the grid provided in, in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, for you and your family, you can't judge another family for what they do you have to decide before the Lord. This is what I teach my own church, and, and you, have to, you have to make that call. I mean, I can tell you what our family's done, but that's not the point. The point is you have to make that decision before the Lord, and here's the temptation, Romans 14. The temptation for those who don't is to judge the spirituality of those who do, and the temptation of those who do is to look down in some sort of spirit of ridicule on those who don't. You can't do either of those, Romans 14 says. You've got to give the freedom for others to make that decision for the Lord. They have a Lord. You're not him. That's helpful, and that relates to the next question that was asked here, too, related to Christmas. Uh, 
how should we as Christians who profess Sola Scriptura celebrate other Christian holidays such as Christmas, which are not prescribed or regulated by Scripture? Some of the Puritans forbid the celebration of Christmas because of the pagan roots of that particular holiday. Uh, and some would say that the whole Christmas celebration is really just Protestant Christianity's you know, permission to have icons. You know, you set up angels in the house and the tree becomes the centerpiece and all these religious artifacts on the, on the tree, the nativity set. Uh, would you say that this falls under that same category as well? Well, first of all, yes, I would say it's, it's also an issue of conscience. Again, it's back to chapter and verse. Is there a chapter and verse? No. So it becomes an issue of conscience. Um, I, I think in terms of some of the specifics, uh, you know, I would say there is evidence um, that as early as the second century, there was a recognition, not a celebration, but a recognition of a date uh, that was in the December, early January category. Uh, that tradition goes back a long way. Um, the celebration didn't begin till later, and there were many throughout church history who said that should never be done. I think it's an issue of conscience. Certainly, I would agree that you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be worshiping uh, those, uh, those implements of Christmas nor worshiping through them. They are simply reminders of the reality of what, what has taken place. I think that's, you have to guard your own thinking, you know, in, in every context to keep that from happening. I mean, you have to guard your thinking when you come in a building like this, you know, to think this is the church. This isn't the church. This is the building where the church gathers. Um, so it's really easy with anything physical to sort of lose that picture. And, uh, and you, you have to remember that even if you do, if your family does choose to celebrate Christmas. I know here at Grace, obviously, of Christmas concerts, we do as well. And yes, we do set up for Christmas in our household. But I think what you have to avoid is the, if you do that, is the extreme commercialism that has gripped. And I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. You go into Costco in October and there are Christmas trees. It's like, really? We haven't even, we haven't gotten close to Thanksgiving yet. Um, and so it's just, it's raw commercialism. And, you know, I find myself increasingly turned off by that. But that doesn't mean that therefore I'm not going to celebrate the birth of Christ. I think for a believer, uh, you can do it with the right spirit in the right way. But it's, it is an issue of conscience. You may choose to say, no, we just, we're not going to go there. These questions raise a, a bigger issue, and that's partnership with unbelievers. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 18, uh, we can turn there. Uh, I'll just ask the question first. Uh, it, it forbids the believer from having a partnership with unbelievers. And the question is, to whom does this apply? Is this a text that we would use only in the context of, of, of marriage, potential marriage relationships, does this have to do with the workplace, business relationships? Does this have to do with ecumenical ties? Uh, how would you apply this principle today? And we could turn there. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. Well, um, first of all, I would say keep your finger there, but turn back to 1 Corinthians 5, because I want you to see, first of all, what it doesn't mean. I think that's always a good place to start. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of this world. 
but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. You know, he's, he's making the point here that to be a Christian does not mean isolation. It doesn't mean you don't have anything to do with unbelievers. I mean, we're called to, to be light in the darkness. We're called to associate with unbelievers, not to sin with them, not to have them be your best friends, but to, to love them and care for them and to be around them. And many of you do that in the context of work, in the context of your families. Many of them are unbelievers. Um, you do that in the context of your, your, perhaps your living situation, if you're in an apartment or your neighbors or whatever it might be. Um, so that's just normal. You are going to associate with unbelievers. And Paul said, I didn't tell you not to associate with them. So he doesn't mean that. Now go back to 2 Corinthians 6. If you look at it clearly, he's talking about in common spiritual enterprise. Um, He says in verse 14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? He's giving these contrasts, and he's building to the one that he really wants to make the point about. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what a believer in common with an unbeliever? And here he goes, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are, that is, believers collectively, not only are we individually, our bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit, but collectively, we are a temple in which God is worshipped. We are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them, walk among them. And therefore, verse 17, come out from their midst and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean. I will welcome you. And then verse 1 of chapter 7, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit. That word defilement is used in an Old Testament context most often to talk about that, that inability to worship because you had been connected to something that kept you from worshiping. So I, I think the context here, he's talking about, and the Corinthians were bad about this, connecting themselves back to their pagan roots, back to their idolatrous roots, whether it was going for a feast at the temple of, of a pagan god or whatever it might be, they were often engaging in that. And he's saying, look, you, you can't do that. They don't have anything in common. So I think the primary point of this passage is the, the spiritual enterprise. A, a, a first application of it might be, in, in my case, um, going to an interfaith prayer breakfast you know, where the city, my, the city I pastor in wants to have an interfaith prayer breakfast with all these people of all these different faiths, you know, where, you know, the gods of the nations are idols. They're, inter, they're energized by demons, according to both Deuteronomy and Corinthians. So, you know, I, I can't do that. What, what fellowship have the two? That's the primary application, I think, that kind of thing in our day. But I think there could be other implications. Certainly, an implication from this text, not the primary point of the passage, but an implication might be dating and marrying an unbeliever. But you don't need this text to get there. I mean, we're told elsewhere that we're to marry only in the Lord. So the principle is here, but that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage has to do with with religious cooperation with, with false religion, with idolatry, paganism. That's good. I'm going to come back to now some some personal or practical questions. Uh, One of them is, what person or people have made the biggest impact in your life? 
I would say three. My dad, um, from whom I learned much. I grew up, as I told you, and he'd been converted, and the Lord really marvelously saved him. I heard him share his testimony many times, saw a genuine love for Christ in his life um, every single morning of my life. And I would, by the way, I would challenge you men. He was never a teacher. He just wasn't a teacher. And he didn't teach. I'm not saying you shouldn't or that I shouldn't. I'm saying he didn't. But I tell you what he did that made an impact on me my whole life. Never a morning went by when we didn't gather around the table for breakfast. And my dad picked up the Bible and read a passage from the Bible and prayed. That's all he did. Occasionally he might make a comment. But what that did for me, just that taught me this matters to my dad. This is important. We we just didn't eat until that happened. And so, um, you know, I think he made a great impact on me. Secondly, I would say... If I can just jump in at this point, that's one of the fears often of men is that they, they fear they can't teach and therefore they can't leave an impact or a lasting influence on their children. It's something so simple as just reading what is written and praying together can have such an impact that your children will go and walk with... Are all your siblings saved? Are they all professing believers? Um, they're all professing believers. I have nine siblings. Um, all my parents are with the Lord, but all of my siblings are, are still with us. And there is, there's one of them that I worry about who professes Christ that I'm not convinced that's true. I just don't see a lot of evidence. But yeah, it's, it's remarkable to see the impact in, in my generation because of my parents' faith. What I, saw, what I saw from my dad, and I just challenge you men, I saw two things, even though he wasn't a teacher, that made a lasting impact on me. One, there was never a morning when he wasn't in the Scripture himself. I saw him. I got up. I saw him sitting reading his Bible. I knew it mattered. And there was never a morning. Now, remember, we had, we had 10 kids. One or two of them had left the house by the time I was born. But we had a 900-square-foot house, and then we had an outbuilding that we called the boys' room. It was like a cinder block dormitory for the boys. There were five boys, five girls. And uh, every morning at 5.30, my dad would show up and knock on the boys' room door. That's what we called it. He'd knock on the boys' room door and say, okay, boys, time for breakfast. We'd roll out of bed because we only had two bathrooms, and we had a bunch of people to get through two bathrooms before the day began. And we would go inside, you know, bleary-eyed, sitting there, you know, and he would open the Bible, and he would read a passage from a psalm or through the section of the gospel, wherever he was reading, and then he would pray. Those two things made a huge impact on me. So don't undersell. If you're not a teacher, you need to be trying to teach, and there are a lot of resources out there that can help you. But don't undersell even the simple things that show your faith is genuine. That's great. Number two, the other two uh, people who... So my dad, secondly, would be John MacArthur. Um, I got exposed to John's ministry when I was teaching as a graduate assistant back at Bob Jones, and I turned on the radio, Gaffney, South Carolina, and uh, heard his sermons and really developed an appreciation for his ministry. I remember the first series I heard him do was Kingdom Living Here and Now, made an impact. And while I was listening to that, um, my office mate, said, you know, that is great, and there's another resource like that you need to be exposed to, and introduced me to the third man who had the greatest impact on my life, and that's Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, he introduced me to his book, Sermon on the Mount, which if you haven't read, that needs to be at the top of the list. It's, it's life-changing. It was for me when I was in seminary, and I'm confident it will be for you as well. But those three men 
you know, obviously, I don't agree with myself all the time. So I, I, I don't agree with, with them in every way, but I have so much respect and have been such, have such a huge impact on my life from those three men. You mentioned books. What are some of the books you think every man should read? Uh, obviously, you know, after reading the scriptures, the priority, what would be your list of maybe two, three, four books that are just essential for us as we take advantage of the great resources that God has blessed the church with? So this means the list of 23 I have here is probably not where <laughs> well, you want to go. Yeah. Um, I actually have a, I have a list in my, in my bookstore at my church. People ask me this question, and so what are the books that have most influenced you? And that list kind of keeps growing along the way, and there are 23 of them. But, okay, well, but take here, us through them. No, no, I won't take you through all of them, but I'll mention a, just a few key ones. You know, it started out for me on the nature of God himself. And, you know, eventually that got to some serious things like Charnock and, and Calvin's Institutes. But it started with two books, uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer and The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. They each have their own strengths and weaknesses, but, but they got me thinking about God. And I think that is key. Obviously, eventually, um, Pink's book, The Attributes of God, you know, those are foundational. If you haven't read particularly Pink's, I would say you ought to read it. That will have a huge impact on you because most people don't love and, and, and pursue God because they don't know, they don't really understand what he's like. And the more you understand what he's like, the more you find yourself attracted to him and you want to pursue him. So I think that's key. So that's A.W. Pink, The Attributes of God, for those of you who are taking notes, yeah. The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. We actually gave that one out at a conference a couple of years ago here. Then the other one was A.W. Tozer, Knowledge yeah. of the Holy. He's a little mystical for me yeah. at this stage of my life, but when I was starting out as a new believer, it made a huge impact. Just yeah. those big thoughts of God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading in his chapter on the wisdom of God, this statement that stuck with me. God is, in his wisdom, not only ordains the ends, but he also ordains the wisest means to get to those ends. Yeah. That's, that's life-changing. So they're just these thoughts about God that are huge. Sermon on the Mount, I mentioned that. Under, that'll help you understand what being a real Christian is. And that's by, by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you'll look at it. If you're not a reader, you'll be, it'll look a little daunting. Don't be daunted. Read it. It will be wonderful. It'll be life-changing. Um, in terms of sanctification, one of the earliest things I was exposed to that just gave me a biblical understanding of sanctification, because I was raised in a very mystical, sort of experiential setting, was Jerry Bridges' little book, The Pursuit of Holiness. And it's just, it's just a brief, this is a short read, just a brief understanding of what it means to pursue holiness in your own life. And uh, that was really helpful for me early on. Um, I would say another one that got me off of the mysticism train was a book called um, um, Decision-Making and the Will of God by Gary Friesen. Decision-Making and the Will of God. Now, that's a pretty thick book. It's worth the read. If you, if you want to know how to make decisions in your life, how to decide what career path to take, who to marry, or what to do in your retirement years, whatever it might be, that's a great book to help you understand how to discern God's will for your life. Now, if you want a shorter version of that, there's been a shorter one written, same basic philosophy more recently by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something. Um, 
both of those are those are really good, but they'll help they'll revolutionize your thinking about God's will. Most people live in this, you know, this sort of mystical, you know, lay out a fleece kind of mentality. And uh, both of those books will destroy that and help you lay a biblical foundation for making decisions. That's been huge throughout my life. Any others on that list? Yeah, I would say, again, there are 23 here, but I'd yeah. say uh, Spiritual Leadership by J. Oswald Sanders is, is a really good understanding of what it means to be a leader and what that costs. The Christian Life, I, it's gone through several titles. What is the, the latest title of Sinclair Ferguson's book? It was Doctrines of the Christian Life, and now I think it's something different. But anyway, you'll, you can find it if you look, look around for it a little bit. That's really good. Just the basic theology of the Christian life. Um, and then on the Scripture, I think perhaps uh, John Piper's best book, I, I, you know, a lot of his books all have the same theme, and if you've read one, you've kind of read them all. But, but the one that I think is his best book is his latest book called A Peculiar Glory about the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. How, does, how do you know the Scripture is God's Word? How do you know that, um, that it's to be believed? And he, he does a really good job of laying out the historic understanding. Uh, it's in the creeds, obviously, because it's in the Scripture, um, of the self-authenticating nature of the Scripture called a peculiar glory. Speaking of reading, how, how important is it for men who are not engaged in full-time ministry uh, to be reading difficult books on theology. Uh, we often want to read something that's easy, work all day, uh, and you try and encourage men to, to read hard books. How do you do that with the men in your church? To get them reading above their current reading level, to challenge and stretch their minds, to get them to think those big thoughts of God. Yeah, I think it starts. One, one, we've done several different things. I think one is having the bookstore handy, featuring books occasionally, challenging men in settings like this. Listen, leaders are readers. You just need to know you've got to have a well to draw from in order to bring anybody else along. And the only way you get that well is by having that well filled by people that God has put in your life to do so. And so um, it's, it's crucial. In fact, there's a great chapter uh, I think it's in, uh, actually in Piper's book, uh, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, about fighting to read, finding time to read. It's a, it's a struggle. It's a struggle in today's world, but it's key because that's how we learn. Essentially, reading is having someone teach you. I mean, that's what it is. It's, it's no different than you're sitting here hearing your pastor week after week teach you the Scripture. Now you're just doubling up on that, whether you're reading his books and he's teaching you through what he's written, whether you're reading some of these other good books that are recommended to you, you're being taught. And the only way you grow is by learning more of the Scriptures, by being pulled along, standing on the shoulders of those who've gone higher and farther than you have. And so that's how you, that's how you get there is through reading. And so I would urge you to do that. How do you do that in today's world? Well, you, you have to find pockets of time. You know, uh, that chapter I mentioned that Piper wrote on reading in Brothers We're Not Professionals, he talks about the fact that he's a, he's a pretty average reader. But if you spend 20 minutes a day reading, you can read a number of books a year. This is not rocket science. It's a matter of the commitment and self-control to do it. And so for me, it involves a couple things. One, I read a lot of books in just my preparation. For example, I'm teaching through Romans. Every passage I preach, I read in addition to my own study. 
I read 15 commentaries on that passage. Um, so there's a lot of reading that happens in that. I read other related books. Secondly, outside of what I'm preaching, I read every night before I go to bed. I have a book with me, either on my iPad if I'm traveling or in, you know, my, <laughs> I have this teetering stack of books on my nightstand. It's, it's becoming increasingly dangerous, actually, the passers-by. But, it's a good thing you don't have earthquakes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we just have tornadoes. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, you have to find that time, make that time. So, you know, that's a great time. Another thing that, that I do that I think people used to do this, you know, before phones, when people had downtime, they had books with them and they read. You're standing in a line, you read. You're, you're, you're going out to lunch perhaps that day by yourself. You don't have a, an appointment. You have a book in the front seat of your car, and you take it in with you, and, and you read something that matters instead of looking through the news headlines again. Um, so there are ways to get there if you think about the time you waste every day doing things that don't matter. You can find a way to build that time with things that matter. Yeah, and that, again, takes us back to that initial counsel. What are we doing today that's really going to make a difference when we get on in life? And reading is one of those things when it's well uh, placed when it's focused on the right things that we'll, we'll never regret having read those things. A uh, question here about uh, also about discipleship. Uh, what practical steps do you take to disciple men personally? What's your commitment to that? Well, I mean, it's, it's obviously it was a priority with Christ, right? That's the model. And it was with Paul. And so I think we have to embrace that. For me, uh, let me just give you a little sort of sort of history. When I was here, um, there, were, there were men we identified in Sojourners who were, who were leaders in our group, and, and those of us who were leaders took on the responsibility for, for working with them, shepherding them. We'd take them out for meals and talk through ministry, talk through issues. Um, once I got to Countryside um, and my pastor there, pastored there 15 years ago, I started initially uh, on Friday mornings at my home at 6, 6 a.m., I would have um, the pastoral staff and the elders come to my house, and I created my own sort of curriculum. This is what we're going to go through, and it was based on 2 Timothy 2.2. You know, the, the things that you have received, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Well, you look at that verse, and, and there are four things there. There's, there's obviously a, a biblical knowledge. You can't teach the Bible if you don't know what the Bible says. There is a, a systematized understanding of that knowledge because you have to understand how passages relate to one another. There's also a personal holiness because you're not able to teach if you're not qualified morally, character-wise to teach. And then finally, there were ministry skills and abilities. Um, able to teach implies a ministry skill. So I took those four categories, biblical knowledge, biblical content, systematic theology, personal holiness, and um, then finally ministry skills. And under each of those categories, I just made a list of those things that I wanted to cover with the leaders in my church. Um, you know, so you can think, you can imagine some of the things that might fall under those headings. And then I just went through them. So every, I think we did it three Friday mornings a month. I gave them one off. We do three Friday mornings, meet at 6 a.m. I'd let them out by 7 give or take. Um, and, and, you know, we just went through for a year and a half, two years, we went through a number of themes. 
And then I started meeting with another group of, of younger men that we thought had potential to be leaders in the church. And then the, I did that for a couple of years. Then the, the elders said, you know what, let's broaden this and let's do this with the men, all the men in the church who want to come. And so then we started this thing, interestingly enough, called Men of the Word. And uh, it's it, a great it was, name. It's a great name. Yeah, I like it. And, um, and we would have uh, on Tuesday nights for three hours, about six or seven times a semester, we'd have the men who wanted to come, come, and we'd go through systematic theology. We'd go through, we focus there not so much on ministry skills, but more on the, the systematic theology side of it. And, um, you know, I thought we would have, I told my, my senior associate, I said, you know, if we had 25, 30 guys show up for that for three years, or three years is the commitment. Um, if we have that many show up, I'll be thrilled. We had 150 show up, and uh, we just walked through that. So, I mean, that's always been a priority. We also, in our church, have a, a discipleship curriculum that we use for person-to-person. Uh, it's actually written by Mike Fabares down the road here in Orange County called Partners. It's a great one-on-one discipleship program. It can, it can be shaped to fit any, um, any level of, of spiritual maturity. It, you can keep it, you know, at a basic level for someone who's new in Christ— or for somebody who's been a Christian a long time, there are a lot of peripheral materials and things you can, you can add on. But we've found that to be really helpful now. Hundreds of people in our church have been through that. That's good. Two more questions here before uh, we let the men go. One has to do with um, the, the reoccurring problems that you see with men today based on your, your experience both here at Grace Church, but particularly at Countryside Bible Church if you could just summarize the things that men need to keep on their radars as, as particular areas of weakness, pitfalls, uh, temptations, what would you warn the men about? Uh, and, and we know these things innately, but give us a list of key problems that are really uh, weighing men down and, and keeping them from being successful before the Lord in terms of their responsibilities as leaders. Well, I mean, you know, it, again, it is, I, I don't think this is like a secret, okay? I think there are three or four things that immediately jump off. When I think about helping men in my own church, men I interact with, my own heart, these are the things we deal with as men. Pride, lust, anger, and selfishness. I mean, those are the categories. And, of course, there are biblical antidotes to each of those and what's the antidote? You know, Ephesians 4 talks about you have to put off, be renewed in your thinking biblically, and then put on. So then you have to ask yourself, what are the opposites of those, of those temptations, those struggles? And again, they're pretty obvious. You know, pride, obviously, humility. So how do you do that? How do you get from pride to humility? Pride is a universal human temptation, but it's particularly a masculine temptation. I think the answer is in 1 Peter 5. You know, there in the middle of that section is, a, is the proverb, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So how do you get to humility? And I think on each side of that proverb, there are three imperatives. One, I think there's one, another two before it and one after it. And those imperatives are, first of all, submit to your elders. In other words, submit to duly constituted human authority. You want to become humble? Start by recognizing God has put authorities in your life and submit to them. Secondly, he says, put on, essentially, put on the apron of a slave. 
What do you think was in Peter's mind when he wrote that? John 13, Christ washing the feet of the disciples. He really did. He really washed their feet. The point is, if you want to become humble, start doing menial service for other people. Lower yourself to do the low things for other people. And that'll build humility into your life. And then thirdly, he says, submit yourself under the mighty hand of God. In other words, accept God's providence in your life. Whatever your circumstances, humble yourself to God's, God's work in your life, what he's doing in your life. Those three things, that's the path from pride to humility. So I use that as an illustration to say, when you look at those four basic sins that we all struggle with, you look for what is the opposite virtue that we're to put on, and then you look for passages like that one that explain how to get there. But those are universal. If I had to add another one, I think one I'm seeing increasingly in, in the younger generation, you guys that are younger than, say, 25, maybe 30 and younger, is just not growing up, you know? There's a reason that 13 was the age of adulthood. It wasn't just that you, you know, your hormones came into place. It was that you really became and started acting like a man. And you guys who are parents, I would say, start treating your, your boys not like adolescents, but like men. Start, you know, give them assignments around the house. Chores is what they used to be called. Have them work like everybody else has to work to make the house work. Get them a job. And, and begin to respect them, treat them like you want them to become. Um, because I, I see that as a big problem in today's world. I see that with three daughters. You know, it's increasingly hard to find guys who have any level of maturity because they haven't, you know, they've got helicopter parents who, who come rescuing them at every, every time they get into trouble. Um, so they're, you know, when I got into trouble, I know many of you are like this, when I got into trouble, it was, you know, if I, if I got a, uh, we used to get paddlings at school. If I got a paddling at school, I got one at home. It was just, it just was, the teacher was right. Nowadays, it's like, oh, how dare that teacher? They must have been wrong, you know? And so those things helped me grow up. I was, I was pushing the lawnmower when I was eight, nine, cutting two acres of grass every Saturday. That was a good thing for me. And working, you know, in the shipyards in Bayou Labatry, Alabama, wiring shrimp boats, that was a good thing for me because it taught me the value of hard work and it taught me I didn't want to spend the rest of my life doing that. I wanted, I wanted to work hard and, and, you know, do what God had made me to do. That's lots of wisdom there. Finally, last question here. Uh, you know, you've spent a lot of years here. This place is very dear to you. These men are very dear to you. You know many of them personally. What would be your final words of counsel and, and your prayer for them uh, as, as you look, uh, look at them? Yeah. You know, I think there would be two things I would say. First of all, this church is a church I love, and in many ways, I think of this as my home church. I was here for 16 years, and, um, and I love coming back here. I love John, your pastor. appreciate him and all he's been in my life. But you can be in a good church and do what happened in Ephesus. Ephesians is one of my favorite books. What a remarkable church. You read Acts. But you fast forward to the book of Revelation, and at the end of the first century, they lost their first love. 
I think I would just tell you, be pursuing Jesus Christ. That's where I started with my testimony. The Christian faith is not about theology, although it can only grow and mature with a growth in your theology. It's about a relationship with a person as you learn about him in the scriptures. You know, that 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we see him, as we gaze on him, we are changed into the same image from one level of glory to another. And so don't lose sight of Christ. Don't lose your first love uh, as you continue to grow. And the other would be my prayer for myself, my prayer for you, is may the Lord help us to finish well. You know, that's, um, you read the Old Testament and you see it's not over till it's over. So don't, don't let up. And may the Lord help us all to finish well in a way that honors Christ. Tom, we're so thankful for the time that you spent with us, all the wisdom that the Lord has blessed you with. We're excited to know that you're preaching and teaching this in Dallas. And uh, we want to pray for you as we close our evening here. Let me, let me do that for you. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you again at the close of our time here, thankful. Our hearts are full, and we're grateful for how you have gifted to the church pastor teachers like Tom, uh, who can open the Word of God and can apply it to our lives so practically, so directly, without shame, without shrinking back, but boldly, with the authority that you give to them in that ministry. And we pray that you would, that you would strengthen Tom in the, in the different responsibilities that he has as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a board member, as, as one who has responsibilities in various spheres of ministry. Give him the endurance he needs to finish well. Give him the insight he needs to be your instrument in those areas of need. Give him many years of ministry to the church, and through him, do great things for the sake of your people. Pray that you'd take the words that he shared this evening and press it deep upon our hearts. You know, there's some men here who may be struggling with some of these things at a very, very deep level. May these words be an encouragement to them, light to them on their path. And with those thoughts that Tom left us with, the problems of, of pride, lust, and anger, selfishness, may you take what we've heard tonight and, and root those things out of our lives, open our eyes to their existence, and then by your grace, supplant those things with the virtues that we need. Thank you again for Tom. Make his time out here in California productive. Bring him back to his family and his church healthy, energized, and we ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.